Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mercedes absolutely nailed it. I have never seen such a good quality performance from an all-round team. Every area chipping in to develop such a strong P2 and P3. We're seeing the back of Melbourne after a turbulent race that left Mercedes leaving the land of Oz, both with an exciting first podium of the year and a disappointing DNF. But how well could Mercedes race have gone had chaos not ensued? Just how good a job did Hamilton do at keeping Fernando Alonso at bay? And have Mercedes closed the gap to Red Bull? Or is this just a track-specific boost? Join me, Balf Baines, on this episode of the Silver Arrows podcast as we discuss all the main talking points from the Australian Grand Prix. And joining us to do that, we welcome back ex-Mercedes strategist and former head of strategy at Haas, Mike Colfield. Mike, how are you? So good to have you back here on the Silver Arrows podcast. Yeah, hi guys. Um, yeah, no, great to be back. It's been interesting first few races. Slightly interesting one yesterday. Yeah, lots to talk about uh, for the first three races. And uh, we also joined my lead engineer, Tom Fletcher. Tom, thanks again for coming back on. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, very well. Thoroughly enjoyed this weekend. Uh, I was on the edge of my seat the entire weekend I think <laughs> yeah I thought I'd need seven cups of coffee just to stay awake but the fighting on track did that for me so let's get straight into this podcast so Mike let's go to you first could you talk us through how Hamilton managed to play second on the podium the Mercedes performance this weekend was an improvement on what we've seen in the first two races. Uh, I think that's done probably to a couple of reasons. Obviously, it helped a little bit of, um, for Perez getting his having a bit of a disastrous Saturday, um, which allowed um, Mercedes to get a free run at um, Verstappen. And it's always that case from that strategic point of view, potentially. Um, but when you've got two cars against one, it, it offers you those options. Unfortunately, as it came into the race, a lot of those were nullified, so they didn't really get a chance to, to play that card. But I think just generally the pace of, of Lewis and Mercedes and George, obviously before his issue, just meant that was a deserved P2, really. On, on the grand scheme of things, I mean, yeah, I think, I think unfortunately, from a strategic point of view, I don't think there was really much else they could have done from it in terms of gaining 
higher than that P2 for Lewis. I think for Sapp, unfortunately, just had that too much pace, but it was comfortable. I think he was very much matching Alonso. Alonso was strong again, but I don't think he was any stronger than what Mercedes were and Hamilton. So I think I don't think that P2 was any ever really any under any under risk. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, George earlier there, uh, Mike. So Tom, let's go to you, George. He did have a fantastic start before he had uh, some power failure. So do you think he could have won without all the chaos that was going on around him? Yes, you, you point out that he had a fantastic start. Yeah, his, his launch was incredible. Sent it down the inside of Max, turn one. Lewis in hot pursuit, who also played an absolute blinder. Fantastic move um, down, down the inside in turn three. Parking his car right on the apex, not taking too much curb and running Verstappen just to the outside of the track, leaving that just enough amount of room to get through. It was absolutely fantastic. In terms of the win, I think the win may have been a bit difficult, judging by the, the pace of Max. I think if both Mercedes had been up there, their, their best chance for the win would have been using Hamilton as a as a block to Verstappen. So allowing him to get the DRS on Russell, closing the gap up and trying to break the toe to Verstappen. But I, I just can't see with, with a double toe, Verstappen's overspeed would just be so much greater. Highly doubt that Mercedes could have won that, to be honest. I tend to agree with Tom. I think it would have been difficult just with the Red Bull's pace. However, I mean, obviously they made that pit stop under the safety car before the red flag came out. So... Potentially, if the red flag hadn't come out, obviously that would have gained George roughly about seven, eight seconds of race time there on both Lewis and, and Max. So I still think it would have been difficult. I mean, Max could have run it and he's had the pace to probably close that gap and then come out very close. But it would have put him in contention to be fighting for that P1. I just don't think probably he had quite enough pace to hold that off in the end. But yeah, it was it was a good strategic call at that point. But yeah, obviously the red flag nullified that. Yeah, the, the RB19 is, is a thing of beauty. That How quick it goes, uh, especially on DRS, is, is incredible. So, Mike, we, we're talking about George and his DNF, and he's apparently down to, to a power unit failure. It's not the, the first reliability issue for a Mercedes engine this year, with obviously Aston Martin and McLaren also struggling over the start of the season. We did have... Craig Scarborough at uh, the beginning of the season and he was talking about rumours about reliability issues we haven't seen hardly any throughout the last couple of years from a Mercedes engine so Mike do you think we're beginning to see a, a pattern here as the races go along throughout the season? It's difficult to say I don't think it's just a Mercedes issue I think if you actually look at all teams now like Ferrari obviously sat the season and and they've had the issues in Bahrain. Verstappen had his issue in uh, Jeddah in qualifying, and then Mercedes, then obviously with George has had one now. So I think it's up and down the grid, really. I think they obviously at the beginning of last year they changed the fuels for the for the PUs, which obviously took some getting around having redesigned to try and get the most out of it. I think that caused some issues last year, and now I think they're trying to push that performance envelope out a little bit further, which again is probably pushing on the the reliability side of things there as well. So I don't think it's a, a specific Mercedes one, but Potentially, it's a case they're just they're trying to push that performance. They didn't quite have the kind of car performance in terms of the chassis that area, so they're obviously trying to push that engine side up a little bit further. And but every team is doing that. I think every team's just really pushing things to the edge now. For me, this failure looked looked like a turbo turbine failure, which could be caused by a number of things. Uh, it had all the hallmarks. Basically, the, the bearings in the turbo require oil, oil pressure to, to reduce the friction. In, in the shaft running through so basically any kind of failure ends up in a load of oil being dumped inside the exhaust um, and around the outside which is pretty much what we saw the power unit sounded fine 
when when you pulled over and left it running for a little bit so all being said i think it's definitely a positive that it, it's um, something on the back of the power unit was in the fire these components tend to be 3d printed from uh, metallic compounds which may be caused to, to why we, we're seeing this and to be honest, it's, it's quite an easy fix. Rather than a design issue, it might be that, you know, as the material is, is laid down, there might be a, a defect in there. So all of these things you can you can dial out with some um, in-process uh, inspection, ramp it up a little bit. But there's the important thing is that obviously it's all pure speculation, but the important thing is that it could be as simple as just a quality issue rather than a, an actual design problem. Yeah, just um, picking up on what you said, Tom. Um, yeah, I actually looked at because some of the speed traces just towards the end of when George got that failure, and yeah, actually, it looks like it is. It looks like it's on the energy side of things rather than the ICE kind of part of the powertrain. So yeah, I think what you're probably right in terms of it's going to be a turbo issue or MGUH. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't look like it's um, producing that extra electrical power on there. So and we'll obviously see the next race of when they've changed what parameters should change on the engine though they'll probably do a full switch of everything after that fire as well so so i think the follow-up question there tom is you think they'll be able to fix the issue before baku i know baku we've got massive gap the chinese grand prix is obviously cancelled so we have got this massive gap between australia and baku's but do you think they'll be able to fix it in that time well if it is what what i think maybe the issue then what they can do is do multiple screenings of parts and identify any any parts that may have or, or show any defects so if, if that's the case then yes but if it's if it's a more fundamental design issue then yeah there is a problem there yeah moving on to, to strategy now do you think that the mercedes team did a good job over the australian weekend and um, perhaps you could talk us through uh, any big decisions and how they would have been made unfortunately for australia um it's never one of the most interesting strategic wise. It's, it's I think going into the race it was obviously a very clear one stop medium hard, which you saw both cars starting on the medium tire uh, and would have gone on to the hard in a normal race. I think the interesting thing throughout it was obviously the lack of information we got from the Friday and then going on to Saturday and the risk of rain on those Fridays and Saturday. I think the race itself was actually fairly straightforward from the strategy point of view, but the qualifying was actually quite an un, unlike uh, qualifying session we've we've seen for for quite a while. So, I think they they did well there, and they obviously got the most out of qualifying and got a pretty good performance in, in in that respect. Just from yeah, being able to read the situation, reading the tires, and and trying to get the most out of that kind of performance um, on that kind of one lap or not one lap on the tire because these ones seem to last a bit longer, but being able to adjust to that and, and get the most out of it there. Now, let's look at how Mercedes managed to build throughout the weekend. Many of the free practice sessions were disrupted, whether that would be by rain or by the quirky uh, GPS issue we had. So, Tom, how was Mercedes running affected and how much of their success on race day was down to extracting as much understanding as possible from that limited data that they had? Well, firstly, I think they, they got off to a good start. They absolutely nailed the baseline um, setup. There was a couple of contributing factors that saw their pace um, improve. The first is uh, obviously nailing that setup baseline from their simulations straight from the factory. Then the second is their upgrades that they brought along seem to have made a definite improvement. And then the combination of all of this combined with a fragmented practice session really uh, 
really set them off on a good in a good stead in in terms of of the other the other drivers and teams. So in FP one, two, and three, how do you think Mercedes was was running in, in that affected arena uh, that we had there, Mike? I think they just you won't really change it on terms of like kind of the effects of the GPS issue, for example. Obviously, that caused that red flag, which caused a bit of an interruption. But I mean, the FP one session. Just in general, they'll be trying to get on top of any kind of making sure, as Tom said, to get the setup was in that ballpark from the simulations pre pre um, pre event, and then they're obviously trying to see what the upgrades were doing if the if there's any kind of mate, anything which is correlating um, with the data, making sure that they just tying in with what they expect. So other than the kind of traffic issues which the GPS caused, that really wouldn't have affected kind of the performance pushing because that FP1 session is just trying to get that kind of baseline down obviously fp2 was then then kind of washed out in 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 a sense um so there was no useful useful running in there so then you kind of go into fp3 with that lack of data and then you're trying to do that kind of bringing in the bit of high fuel running but you don't want to compromise your qualifying preparation too much either so i think they did that kind of well they try to get in much information as they can on that saturday morning on that kind of soft tire and then went into yeah, obviously went into their quality prep and just making sure again what they've learned in FP1 and um, was still in that ballpark. The conditions changed slightly from FP1 onto Saturday. It was much cooler. So again, that changes what you need to do in terms of that preparation. But I think obviously what they did for P3 fed through well into qualifying in terms of kind of getting that understanding of what they needed to extract the most out of the tyres. I think now's as good a time as any to, to talk about quality. Tom, how do you think the strategy for qualifying went? Mercedes absolutely nailed it. I have never seen such a good quality performance from an all-round team. Every area chipping in to develop such a strong P2 and P3. I think one of the things that nailed it for them was understanding how uh, the track evolution and how that played a part in where you need to position the cars uh, during the session. Um, obviously, they, Mercedes putting their two drivers perfectly spaced and well choreographed out last effectively so they were the last cars to cross the line at the end when the tracks are its quickest and both drivers also nothing between them absolutely on on the edge of the car's performance and it was just an absolute stellar job from everyone mike we've touched on the simulator but how do you make a baseline setup and the simulator work both before and during the race so i think um it's two part of the simulations and the sim work um so pre-event is Often not the simulator work, it's more of the kind of running their sims, their virtual sims, basically, in terms of the trying to nail down all the set of parameters. So you're looking at your kind of wing levels, um, you're looking at your suspension settings. And what you're trying to do is obviously mirror what you expect the track to do and hope that your kind of simulation work you do is ties in as best as what the track gets. I think the simplest way to kind of explain it in terms of why people don't nail this straight away is that the track it's it's almost impossible to properly represent the track in its in its actual form. So the grip level will not be exactly right. Um, the kind of weather variables in terms of wind and all that can all have an effect on on what they go. And the tires can be slightly working slightly different. We've heard about tires working or not working. Obviously, a sim has a very defined variable of this is what the grips the tire given. Whereas you can arrive at a racetrack and it be lacking grip, and that actually changes quite um, significantly. So what you're trying to do in terms of getting that baseline setup is arriving and as you roll out the car, roll the car out the garage onto the track for the first time, you get that instant feedback of, yeah, this is this is in the ballpark. We expect it to evolve. The track's going to progress. But 
this is doing what what we expect it to do. It's got certain levels of oversteer, certain levels of understeer, but it's matching with your expectations. It's the drivers tend to either feel happy with the car or not feel happy with the car. And the idea is obviously that as soon as the driver drives it, is that he's only having to make small changes and not having to go through massive kind of um, setup changes, which is deviates hugely from what those kind of um, pre-event simulations found. In terms of then throughout the weekend, these virtual ones are always run. So once you actually start getting track data coming in, you can start to correlate it with with that information. But then obviously what we hear ago on the Friday night, when you actually get the kind of sim drivers in the car, they can actually start doing it. And then that provides that what the kind of the simulators are generally called in in Teams environment is a, a DIL or driver in loop. So you're adding that extra element into that simulation. So you're getting the actual feedback to the driver. You're getting those kind of response and these quirks that a driver might do. So obviously a sim will look for that perfect environment, but the driver might like that little more of a car on the nose or that car with a slightly more instability in, in certain areas, but that provides you with extra stability elsewhere. So you're starting to take the factors which you've learned on the Friday and input into into those models, and then the actual driver on the, in the simulator on the Friday night can start driving it, and you can start making more setup changes. But obviously, the hours are limited at the track. Obviously, in terms of track time and the engineers with curfew, um, so those simulator drivers can then earn their money by doing quite long shifts there to to try and get the most. So when the guys arrive on the Saturday morning, they've got other options to to um, to explore based on on this data, FP1 uh, Mercedes were were very quick from the from the get go. Clearly, the, the baseline setups were working um, as as intended. The one thing they were lacking against the Red Bull, for example, was the the slower speed corners. And I did notice that the, the, the Mercedes car was was much stiffer than uh, than the Red Bull. And I think this is something that Lewis went hunting for between FP1 and FP2. Um, I noticed that the car was absolutely in pieces uh, between two sessions, which suggests that they were playing around with spring rates and damping. Obviously, then throwing the car back together for FP2 to go much slower, really struggling with with the the, the high speed corners now, and not really gaining anything in in the, in the slow speed. So, for me, I find that reassuring that the, the data they're getting back from the factory is is matching the best outcome at the circuit which I felt like before that wasn't really happening and there was this disconnect between uh, reality uh, and and their simulation work. Yeah, then going off into FP3, they, Mercedes did a lot of running, uh, low fuel running on on the softer tyres. I think the main purpose was to understand how to fire them up, um, which then put them in really good stead for the quality. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So Tom talked about uh, Quali there, and I thought it was interesting on two counts. So firstly, Mercedes' approach to warm-up and push-laps was a little bit different to the Red Bulls. And secondly, Mike, it seems that Mercedes have taken a considerable step in understanding their tyre management setup. I definitely think that's that's the case this year. Mercedes is trying to get more out of the tyres than, than what they were seeing last year. I think, especially in this kind of environment last year when it was cool tracks um, and the cooler time, Mercedes were looking to really struggle with getting them um, getting the most out of it in, in that respect. But yeah, I think this year they seem to be a bit more in the window and a bit more of an understanding of kind of getting those tyres in that win, in that working window. I, th- I think from what we've seen in the first few races this year, there's definitely the Red Bull is and the Aston Martin to an extent are very different on the tyres to, to kind of what the um, the other teams are. And I think that potentially kind of played into the hands of Mercedes in qualifying this week. So that I think that the kind of conditions are obviously very different in this weekend compared to what we saw in both Bahrain and, and Jeddah. So, and I think possibly that suits the Mercedes. They they kind of suit the um, cooler conditions a little bit better than than what they, than, than the warmer conditions. Whereas I think potentially that the, the Red Bull and Aston Martin, and this, this is just a theory from what, from what I've been looking at so far, but they might be sitting onto that kind of lower side of the tyre working, but they're, they're struggling to actually get that tyre in that working range in, in the cooler temps. Whereas actually, once they get to the warmer temps, they're, they're able to look after the, the tyres that little bit more. Whereas it seems like Mercedes and Ferrari struggle that little bit more in those warmer temps. So I think that's it's still a theory, but we can, as the season goes on, that's maybe kind of a what, what we'll see will happen as, as different conditions come and uh, and we see this. Uh, I think Baku will actually probably be uh, the next the next step to to show this because that's a uh, different circuit again in terms of the kind of tight preparation. No major upgrades for Mercedes this week. So does that mean the jump in performance towards Red Bull was simply track specific? And we'll see that invert for other tracks. It's a good question. I think, again, it's, it's, there's no single answer. I think it's a combinant, combination of minor upgrades that they bought, which by the looks of things were the addition of some, some extra little uh, sl- slots down by the, uh, the end fences on the front wing. They're designed to supposedly uh, channel air over over the diffuser and make it work more efficiently, which is something that we, we did see. The aerodynamic efficiency has, in, has increased. It's not, it's still not as good as the Red Bulls, obviously, but you know it's put them marginally ahead of the Aston Martins. Yeah, and the combination of the circuit maybe suiting the characteristics of the car is it's more medium to high-speed corners and, and shorter straights as well. So drag isn't such a big issue yeah so looking at all those combined factors great setup i think they ran the car lower than than previous i don't know if it's just me but on the tv it certainly looked lower and maybe some some less break in the car as well and that's all helping the floor work and that is the key if you can get the floor to work that boosts your aerodynamic aerodynamic efficiency basically drag is a function of the of the frontal area of the car so if you if you stand and look down head on an F1 car 
you you can see obviously you've got two massive wings which have a large uh, frontal area compared to the floor that is a very thin profile so the target is to get the majority of your downforce from that floor to improve your, your aerodynamic efficiency which means if you can do that you can run smaller wings and you can go you can you can go faster down the straight in in the simplest possible form i'm not yeah i think it is potentially track specific to start with but as tom said i think some of the little upgrades are going to be definitely aid into it and there's the kind of it, it does seem a bit more stable in terms of the kind of car setup um but i think yeah melbourne as as tom mentioned is quite a lot of high speed medium speed which and as tom said i think in p1 lewis was complaining about the low speed performance and the low speed relative to the red bull was poor and obviously albert park doesn't have a huge amount of low speed so potentially that's the, maybe the one of the weak areas of the of the Merck car so far so that kind of albert park suits them in in that that sense a little bit more because we don't have much of that however that's also a good sign if they know where the weak areas of the car is you can start kind of looking at that area to to try and improve and and get that kind of setup and compromise around it so it's always a good sign if it's just a small area of the of the car which is weak um rather than overall kind of performance throughout so i think that's a positive that there's starting to make progress elsewhere they definitely looked a lot stronger in straight line speed, which you need to be around here. So that's already an improvement because they're able to get that kind of setup more correct. Um, so yeah, so I think a combination of kind of track specifics, but also like little improvements to the overall package as well. I think um, it's, it's giving them that little step up. We've mentioned Red Bull quite a lot uh, on this podcast, but I want to look at another team. Let's go to let's go to Ferrari. So Mike, do you think our pace is better than the team from Maranello? Yes, in terms of, I think this weekend it was definitely in qualifying. It is without doubt. I think um, that that kind of one lap pace, that single lap pace, was pretty strong, and I, I think that's that there was definitely an improvement in that space, and which is which is obviously a huge step up because Ferrari are actually taking it to to Red Bull in in Bahrain, and you do they were kind of able to increase that kind of performance going into that Saturday and, and this weekend they didn't quite able seem able to do that. In the race, I mean, it was it was obviously quite difficult to get that kind of overall picture of where race pace stood. There wasn't much high fuel running throughout the weekend to get those comparisons. And obviously um, Leclerc was out on lap one and signed out to then make it through the field. So it's um, it was it was difficult to kind of see what their overall pace is. Well, signs seemed to come through the field quite quickly and his pace was quite well at some point. But then obviously as soon as he got through... Um, the, the Alpine, he then wasn't able to make any further progress once he lost that DRS. I'd say you were matching at best um, Ferrari, if not a little bit quicker. I think all those cars were quite similarly matched in, in race pace, which was which is going to be interesting going to other circuits this year, but I, I don't think there's a lot at all um, in, in terms of performance in in that race. There's a, there's a lot of close teams at this one, and it's going to make quite a big impact in terms of getting your car set up absolutely spot on and making the most of it and i think actually that kind of indicates as well that qualifying is going to be crucial this year yeah for, for me i think ferrari um they, they still have a very quick race car uh, one that we have to be wary of comparing uh sciences the closing stages of the race against hamilton uh he was really he was up there with hamilton in terms of um straight line performance and corner speeds where they're struggling to me looks like after just shortly after the areas where the car's traction limited so basically when you're demanding full torque from the engine and power unit 
it looks to me like they're still nursing some kind of electrical uh, concerns and not not really optimizing the performance in that stage of acceleration, which is a worry because that that can be fixed under the regulations if you're if you're changing things to aid reliability, you can do that rather than than changing it for performance. So yeah, I think once once they get those problems sorted, they're going to be hot on Mercedes heels again. Yeah, we heard the the outpour of emotion from signs when you had that five second penalty. But in in terms of the W14, Tom, what tracks in our calendar do you think that the car can perform well? Yes, good question. I think. At the moment, it's it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a difficult question because what's happening is that they've got a, a second car in the wind tunnel. We now we don't know how that car is going to be different to this one. But talking from just specifically what we've seen from this weekend, the car works well, stiffly sprung. They're obviously getting a lot of downforce from from the floor now, which is working really effectively. Any tracks with corners at high speed to to medium speed, minus the low lower speeds, is where they struggle. So. The circuits like Spain come to mind, Catalonia, Silverstone. They're they're really the tracks that they're gonna. I think you see see the best in this car. Nice and nice and flat. No no real bumps. Good range of medium to high speed corners with with little low speed. I, I would quite like to add maybe Las Vegas. That seems like quite a a, a flat track. In, in addition to your <laughs> Spanish and British Tom Grand Prix, uh, Mike, is there any other tracks? Do you think? The W14 could perform uh, really well. I don't think that it's it's all relative, isn't it, in terms of of how they're going to perform. And we obviously don't know um, when that kind of next car generation is going to come. So I don't know what we're going to call it. Is it going to be the W14B? I don't know what if we're going to have a name of change, name change at that point. Yeah, on the ones coming up, Baku is always a difficult one. And even in like the prime prime Merc era, it's it's never been a circuit which has been particularly happy punting grounds. Really, it's it's very difficult one to get tire temperature in there but if you maybe look at this weekend where it was low temperatures in terms of of trying to get the the tires working they seem to kind of get that kind of feeling okay for it but there are a lot of low speed corners it's obviously a lot of kind of 90 degrees slow street circuit stuff so will it suit it will it not it's a question with miami Again, it's it's one of those ones. It's it's these street circuits. They're very bumpy. Will they be able to run it as low as they'd like to? Obviously, Albert Park's a semi-street circuit, and they're still able to run it low. So maybe they're getting that com- confidence to to run it lower in that respect. But again, I think the next two may be slightly difficult and what more difficult than what we've seen in th- this weekend. But I, I think that there's going to be there or thereabouts. I mean, I think regardless of of where it's a sweet spot or not, I think we're go- we're always going to be competing with. Um, Aston Martins and Ferraris for that kind of number two team. Hopefully, once we get towards the end of the season and the new car comes in, we're competing for the Red Bull. The Red Bull, but I think at the moment there's just too much of a gap to them at that point. But so that's why I said it's all relative. It's it's almost some circuits which I were going to suit Mercedes and not suit Aston Martin or not suit Ferrari, and then just see how it all falls out there. And then in terms of kind of any other ones, kind of thinking. Austria might be a kind of a fairly good one for them this year. I, I, I expect that that could be quite a good circuit. Yeah, because I mean that's very high speed. Um, maybe Spa as well, but that could be interesting. 
Uh, Mike, you've, you've mentioned some far-flung and exotic locations there, but stepping away from the technical side, how do the team cope with the travelling to all of these races? I mean, it's, it's a great question. Everyone kind of has their own plan. I mean, the teams nowadays, they all have kind of what I think what they're generally called human performance coaches. So going into, into a race weekend or an event before flights, you almost kind of get a schedule based on your flight on where you should be sleeping, what hours you should be doing, when you should be exposing yourself to sunlight, eating certain meals, etc. I know some people who, who really enjoyed that and tried to do it. Other people have their own tactics of what they do. And for some people, and what works for one person doesn't work for another person, for example. And everyone's flights are kind of different. I mean, when I used to go to Australia, we had the very difficult one of often arriving in an evening to you having to get off a flight and pretty much trying to make yourself go straight to bed when effectively you're still on UK time in the morning. So you have to be really kind of quite um, working quite hard on the flight to either stay awake to just really tie yourself on that flight, knowing that when you reach reach Australia, you then you can fall asleep because you, you're going out. But obviously trying to keep yourself occupied for 20 odd hours in a seat is um, is quite difficult as well without just nodding off in, in that respect. And then it's just really, they'll, they'll try and get the, the, the team members out there as, as early as possible, but not too early to obviously extend the time away from home. We generally, Australia will get there Tuesday at the latest, and then kind of Wednesday, kind of try and adjust it. You'll usually have probably an, well, based on me anyway, it was an early wake up. You'd be awake by about five just through jet lag. Try and go out, get some fresh air, do a run, something, and then you, you're straight into work really at that point. So then you're kind of forced to do a day's work and by the time you reach that kind of Wednesday night, you've um, you've either not slept all well the night before, slash been on a twenty-hour flight the day before, so you 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 sat shattered, you fall asleep, and then you kind of into that rhythm, um, or you you kind of have that regress. Australia is actually one of the easier ones. Sounds strange, but because it's so far and you have a so long flight, you you generally tired out by the time you get there. Some of the more harder ones are the kind of um, the four or five-hour shift ones, and then they kind of. You're just in a bit of that no man's land and you're just generally tired the whole weekend. You can you're sleeping fine, but you're just not quite on your right schedule. But yeah, I think the the harder one is is I've obviously back in my day at Mercedes, I used to do it from race support. So you're having to do Australian hours on UK time. So you were then trying to sleep at three o'clock in the afternoon. So you're trying to black out your windows, get your earplugs in, go to sleep. And again, I had people who worked for me at that point who used to do a number of different things of such of, right, I'll just stay up one night and do a full like 36 hour day to get me into the kind of rhythm of it. And then or people who generally from like the Sunday before start to offset gradually each day to get themselves on the time by the time to get to the weekend. But like I said, what works for one person doesn't work for another. And you, you kind of got to find out what what suits you the best. Um, a lot of these guys obviously do the traveling now, uh, quite expert pros of, of what works and what doesn't and you'll get a lot of stories from each and every one of them of, of disasters they've had and um, successes as well everyone's quite happy when you get into the track on on a Thursday and go that brilliant night's sleep and then you see someone across from you who, who um, who's struggling it's, it's always interesting to hear how that works and the, and the behind the scenes and someone who seems to have it all figured out in terms of that making sure the time zones, the jet lag is, is Lewis Hamilton. And he seemed really, really energized after the race this weekend. So Tom, how important do you think that will be in Mercedes attempt to get back to the front? Yeah, that's, it's hugely important. Um, especially with this, this long break now, um, it just, just 
it's just what the team needed to energize everyone and you know uh, make the engineers stay an hour later each night and and get get those parts pushed through the wind tunnel and, and to the car. Yeah, it's it's hugely important. Being a, an ex insider of the Mercedes team, when you hear one of your drivers speak like that, does that galvanise you? Does that lift your spirits? Does that increase your confidence? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, as as working for the team, you're putting in so many hours, so it's obviously really uplifting to know that like you've done a good job. Anyone likes to be told they've done a good job. But obviously when someone like Lewis or, or any of your drivers come back and positive about the kind of work you've been putting in, you kind of get that kind of satisfaction that you know you're heading in the right direction, but, but it's all coming together and bit by bit it's it's starting to get to, to where you, you're working for it to be. And obviously someone like Lewis, you know as well as a personality, he he like wears his heart on his sleeve so when he's positive about something you know it's really good as well you, you know that it's okay things are coming together and and like all right we've had a difficult couple of weeks or a difficult couple of months in fact but he's he's kind of doing that kind of part he's and he, he's a really good team player in in that sense he, he he doesn't shirk it he doesn't you can tell like i said you can tell when he's unhappy and you can tell when he's happy so he's he, it's sometimes it can be it's not disheartening when he's on the opposite effect of it but it's definitely uplifting when when he he kind of praises you he definitely wears his heart on the sleeve we he said earlier in the season that that the team didn't listen to me and now he's completely done a 180 and he seems to be happy with the car at the moment but mike we've got we've got a massive gap between now and baku on the 30th of april so what will the team be doing in the three weeks or so i mean it won't change a huge amount of things with this big gap i think yeah, it does kind of split into it obviously with the decisions to go down um with a, a different car concept you, your design team's just going to be pushing away wind tunnel team's going to be pushing away it's not really going to change anything with this period they're going to be still looking for all the gains they can get and trying to get that kind of new concept out as quick as possible i think what actually for the grand scheme of things for the race team is to use this time to actually look over like the first few races they'll have a bit of a split between trying to analyze what's gone right what's gone wrong in these first few races um so your engineers will be looking over the data seeing what works obviously this weekend was more competitive and more uh, and a and then a successful weekend in the grand scheme of things so they'll be churning over the data making sure that they can understand everything that happened and why it happened and how they can take that into the next few races so that'll be probably the main job um obviously you'll do your normal preparation for baku um and miami you're starting to get into a group of races so we've obviously got a double header coming up for baku miami and then it's a triple header after a week's gap there so you've got five and five races in the next six once we return so actually a lot of the race team and a lot of those people who are doing the full 23 races this year I imagine they're going to try and use this gap in the calendar to actually get a bit of um, R and R, and they'll probably take a sometime week off, but maybe a couple of days around Easter, because it's actually a, it's an unusual occurrence. If you have the chance to take a week off in the season, normally it's, you're very much restricted to that Christmas or summer shutdown break. So there's a chance to actually recharge your batteries, especially with five races in six come in six weeks coming up. Um, I'd be surprised if people don't getting that but that's a good thing as well to people just to refresh you often go away and come back after a little bit of break and you get to go again as well and that's um a positive for everyone yeah that rest and relaxation is is so so important tom what do you think the focus is leading up to azerbaijan 
for me, it's uh, bottoming out the issues that George Russell had with his power unit. Obviously, you need to find out what that what the cause is, uh, what you can do to to mitigate it going forward, um, and and that really how it's going to affect the, the, the upcoming season. Um, on top of all of that. I expect them to be pushing with their B-spec car. That cannot come soon enough. And and yeah, just maximum attack for, for the rest of the races, I think. Well, we have come to the end of this Silver Arrows podcast. Mike, Tom, thank you so much for joining us before and also on this podcast as well. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, Bob. Thank you very much. And that's about it for this week. A massive thank you to Mike and Tom for joining us. There's a link to Mike's social media in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Do remember to follow us on Twitter at f one pod and hit that follow button in your podcast app. If you're enjoying these episodes and feeling extra kind, drop us a review and share this episode with anybody who you think may enjoy it. We'll see you soon. 